We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. Last week, we read where King Joash put on a religious show. And boy, it was an Academy Award winner, wasn't it? A king whom God said had done evil and walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that king came to Elisha the prophet during Elisha's final days. Now, he didn't have anything to do with Elisha before then, but he knew about him. And the sick prophet Elisha was no longer going to be around to help Israel because the Bible said he was sick unto death. He'd no longer be around to help Israel, and although they'd refused those warnings he'd given them, they still preferred darkness over light, didn't they? And so God delivered them into the hands of their enemies. And that's what he always did. And we left off in verse 17 of Second Kings chapter 13. And we were in the middle of Elisha instructing Joash to take a bow and some arrows. And during this, Elisha put his hand on the bow with Joash's hand. So let's go ahead and read verse 17 again and continue learning from it. And this is Elisha speaking to King Joash. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And we looked at the significance of the arrow, which was God's deliverance. And we began looking at the bow that shot it. Now the bow has to be part of the picture here. Not just the arrow, because the bow is what launches the arrow toward its target. And as I studied the bow in the Bible, I saw that it represented God's strength. How else does the arrow get launched but by the strength of the bow? Listen to what the Bible says when it comes to God's deliverance as the bow represents it. In Psalm chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, Psalm 7, verses 10 through 13, David wrote, My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not... He will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. It's just like this, folks. God's bow, if you want an image, it's just like this. He hath made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Now consider a practical truth about a bow. How many of you in here have ever shot a bow and arrow? Now that's a pretty good number. 
Some of you may have become proficient at it. There is a whole subscription of magazines dedicated to the bow hunter. Now, if you have one of those, you are truly an archer, or at least you think you are. <laughs> but <clears throat> when a hunter bends his bow, when he draws that string back, and there's a deer 30 or 40 yards away from him, that deer has no idea that that bow has been bent. He has no idea. He's standing there eating acorns off the ground or looking around for a, a mate or just soaking up the rays of the morning sun. But once the strength of that bow is transferred to that arrow by releasing that string, then it will be too late for the deer. The deer standing there, eating acorns, he has no idea the strength of the bow has been drawn and that the arrow is ready to come flying at him. And that hunter lets it go. That arrow will have pierced that deer's heart and caused a certain death within a matter of seconds or minutes. It's too late for the deer. Now that deer reminds me of the unbelievers in this world who mock God. They say, where is this strong God you speak of? The world is full of evil. How does your God do nothing about it? Is he powerless? They mock God. They think God is without strength. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because David, the psalmist, wrote, he testified that God's bow is already bent. And that arrow, all that awaits is God's perfect timing to release the arrow of judgment. And it's for the persecutors. It's not for you and me if you're a believer. It's for the persecutors. His enemies. And that arrow, when he releases that arrow of judgment, it will destroy its enemies more quickly than the, the physical arrow destroyed the deer. It'll happen that sudden. They won't be able to do anything about it. But we who are his know, we believe what the psalmist wrote, that the bow is already bent. We don't say, well, I guess God's not able to deliver us. Oh, he is. He's ready. He's done it positionally for us at the cross. But he will do it practically one day when he takes out all which is evil with his arrow of deliverance. My wife and I were talking this morning on the way to church about the upcoming presidential election. They'll start the campaigning this next year and then we'll have another one. And I said, well, you know, I know where I'm voting and who I'm voting for. I know what my convictions are. But I have, uh, I have no delusion that this will turn out like it's supposed to again. I don't. I hope it does. I want it to. But if it turns out just as crooked as it did before, it won't surprise me. Because God's allowing this country to go through what it needs to go through. This country, by and large, minus God's people, have not just turned their back on God. They just don't believe in him. They don't believe in the God of the Bible, the God of their own making they trust. And we who are righteous, though we'll suffer physically 
from the effects. We don't draw our strength from what happens in this country, whether it's good or bad. It's what God does for us. God's our deliverer, and he's going to take us out of this one day. So it's going to be a rocky ride, but we know God's bow is drawn. The unbeliever, the mocker, says, no, it's not. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Second Peter 3 and verse 10 speaks of the day of the Lord. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, you, you fellas, when y'all were little boys, I know you did this. As soon as you learned how to make fire, the world was a more dangerous place, wasn't it? Man, we burned stuff. We'd set stuff on fire. And I remember the first time I ever put a match under a piece of plastic and watched it melt immediately, just like that. That's what I think of when I think of the elements shall melt with fervent heat. It's not a slow roast. We're not cooking a barbecue here. That's not the image. The image is of that fervent heat that melts the elements quickly and without remedy. In the psalm we read earlier, David showed us that God was his defense. And God bent his bow to shoot the arrows of judgment against the persecutors who had not repented. And in our text here in 2 Kings, we saw in verse 16 that Joash was to put his hand on the bow. And he represents the earthly instrument God will use to bring deliverance to Israel over Syria at that time. But then Elisha put his hand on Joash's bow as well. And Elisha represented God on the earth. He was God's representative to the people. Elisha was not God. He was a man, just like you and I are. But he represented God on this earth. And so with Joash's bow, hand on the bow and Elisha's hand on the bow, it shows us that the only way Joash was going to deliver Israel was with God's hand on him as Elisha represented God. Elisha's hand had to be on the bow with Joash's hand before the bow was pulled to shoot that arrow. And God's hand had to be on Israel before they could rise up against the Syrians and prevail. Now look back in verse 17 at the beginning where Elisha told Joash, open the window eastward, eastward. Eastward may have referred to the direction from which the Syrians would come, but Syria was more to the northeast of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. It was more to the northeast than it was to the east. To the east is Jordan. And in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14, Aaron was told to sprinkle the blood of the sin offering in a certain direction. Leviticus 16, 14 says, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. So the blood that's to be sprinkled on the mercy seat was to be sprinkled eastward. Eastward. 
We know that the sun rises in the east. The wise men saw Jesus' star in the east. And speaking to his disciples about the end times, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So the reference to east or eastward in our text appears to me to have something to do with deliverance from the power of darkness. And that fully comes to pass when Jesus gathers his church together, his elect, and pours out his wrath upon evil, redeems his creation once and for all, so we can live in a redeemed creation again instead of a fallen world. Now seeing how the bow and the arrow speak of deliverance from the enemies, Joash's hand and Elisha's hand shot the arrow. Elisha teaches him that these arrows represent the Lord's deliverance. And not only was it the Lord's deliverance, but it was a complete deliverance. Because Elisha told Joash, For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. Till thou have consumed them does not mean until thou hast eaten them. We think of consumption as eating. In fact, we think about eating probably too much, don't we? So the word consume doesn't always mean to eat, though it can have that meaning. It means to finish, to make an end of. Now that's what happens to your plate when you consume your food. You finish it. And I'm a plate finisher. I like to finish everything on my plate. And if there's a piece of bread and a little bit of egg or gravy, it's getting sopped up. So we don't have to wash off a whole lot of things. That's just the way I was brought up to treat every meal like it was my last. Because the way I lived when I was younger, it certainly could have been. Elijah showed Joash the connection between the bow and the arrow particularly the arrow and the Lord's deliverance. And that arrow should have made a strong impression on Joash. As he beheld it, he should have thought, boy, this is more than just an arrow. This is an object lesson. God is teaching me something about his deliverance. But Joash was shallow. He walked in the evil ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And you're going to see that this arrow... This lesson about God's complete deliverance over Syria didn't really take with Joash. Verse 18, look with me now. And he, that's Elisha, said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. That means he stopped. He told Joash to take those arrows of deliverance, those arrows of complete deliverance, till thou have consumed the Syrians in Aphek, and to smite, and that word is translated in the Bible as the word slay 92 times and as the word kill 20 times. So it means more than just tapping the ground with the arrows. To smite is to strike with authority. Repeatedly, if necessary, to slay or to kill. 
It says he smote thrice and stayed. Elisha didn't tell him how many times to smite the ground. But Joash was content to hit the ground three times rather than to hit it until the prophet said, okay, stop, that's enough. He didn't just hit it once or twice, but three times before he stopped. And you might say, well, how's he supposed to know how many times to smite the ground with the arrows? The answer is found in the word consumed. If the arrows represented deliverance over Syria, so much so that they were consumed, they were finished off, then why would you just smite three times on the ground with those arrows? With the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, Israel would consume the Syrians in Aphek if they wanted it. And had Joash fully embraced that consuming deliverance, he would have beat the ground with those arrows forcefully over and over, but he did not. So the prophet answers him this way in the next verse, verse 19. And the man of God was wroth with him. So that means Elisha was angry with King Joash and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Elisha was angry at Joash's poor performance here. He basically said, Elisha, you didn't understand the object lesson I just taught you. You're a king. I taught you about the Lord's complete deliverance over Israel, and you don't want a complete deliverance over Israel. It also tells us Syria, or excuse me, over Syria. It also tells us Syria was going to come back more than three times to fight against Israel. Because he said, you're only going to be delivered three times. Well, if they only attack three times, that's all you'd need, wouldn't it? But they're going to come in at him more and more. Elisha realized the power of God's deliverance as represented by those arrows. And perhaps we understand now why Joash's epitaph, which we've already read, was about his might rather than the Lord's might through him. In our passage, Joash smiting the ground only three times when Elisha would have had him do it five or six times teaches us something that Joash was content with incomplete deliverance from the Syrians. He was content to have to use his own might against the Syrians after that third time and a fourth and a fifth time. And our verse strongly indicates there will be a fourth time. Look at verse 20 now. And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. After all Elisha had done, and if you've been coming faithfully or you've been listening to the messages online or maybe both, you'll know that Elisha performed miracle after miracle by the grace of God. And he was a great minister toward Israel, a great prophet. And after all he'd done, this very short verse describes his death and funeral just like that. It doesn't go on and on. 
He died and was buried. That's it. You're born, you live a short life. This is everybody. You die and you're buried. Now, if you're a believer, the worst part's over at that point, isn't it? The part about fighting against the flesh, the devil, the lusts, all of those things that are constantly barking at you during the day when you're trying to live the Christian life and yield to God's spirit. And the devil's saying, hey, why don't you take a break from that? Why don't you, you don't need to go to church tomorrow. What you need to do is go out here to the golf course and just relax. Or you don't need to read your Bible. Why don't you read something, something else? You read that Bible every day. That's the kind of thing the devil tells you. Not audibly, but in your flesh. And you yield to it from time to time. But for that believer, when all that's gone, the worst part's over. And the best part begins. Your spirit is united with the Lord. And your body awaits the redemption from the grave to a new glorified body. There's no bad news there. But if you're lost, you're an unbeliever. Your spirit's in hell and your body awaits a resurrection unto eternal death. You know there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust? That's what the Bible says. In his defense to Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 15, Acts 24, 14 through 15, the Apostle Paul said this, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, that is Christianity, that was the way, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that is the Jews, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. So the believer will be resurrected, but so will the unbeliever. And for Elisha, this death, this burial, was nothing more than the sowing of a corruptible body into the earth. And it will one day be raised incorruptible. Just like mine. Just like yours if you've trusted Christ for your salvation. And back in verse 20 it says, after Elisha's death... And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. Now we're going to learn a lesson, another lesson, about incomplete deliverance. Incomplete deliverance from one enemy leads to attack by another enemy. So Joash didn't want complete deliverance from the Syrians. And it wasn't just because he didn't smite the ground more than three times with the arrows. It was his life before then. It was the evil ways he walked in and that he led Israel to walk in. He didn't want the Lord's deliverance in any way until Elisha died. And he said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. We better go put on this show for this religious man and see if he can keep us from being overrun by the Syrians because I won't be king anymore. I'll lose all my possessions in my people and probably my life. All selfish reasons. But these Moabites had invaded the land. Now they were already having trouble with the Syrians. And the Syrians would continue to trouble Israel. And now the Moabites are emboldened to do it as well. When the Syrians are defeated the first time, we know they're going to come back a second time. The Bible tells us that. 
and a third and a fourth. So their defeat was incomplete. Not because God couldn't do it, but the people didn't want it. Joash didn't want it. And how timely is it that with the Syrians, and we're going to call them an incompletely defeated enemy. They're not completely defeated. How timely is it that another incompletely defeated enemy would also attack Israel, this being the Moabites? Perhaps you remember where the Moabites came from. Not Moab, yes, that's the name of their country. But where did they originate? The Moabites were the offspring of the love child from Lot and his oldest daughter. An incestuous relationship. In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 37, and this was after they left Sodom and Gomorrah, escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was Lot and his two daughters. Those were the only ones who made it out alive. His wife made it out, but then she turned to a pillar of salt. So she's back there, sodium chloride in the flesh, and these others are on their way to a tent where this incest took place. And here's what Genesis 19.37 says, And the firstborn, that is Lot's oldest daughter, bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. So these enemies, the Moabites, were created by a sinful act committed by a just man. The Bible tells us Lot was just. That is, he was saved. He was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. He lived in Sodom and he was affected in every way by their sin. And now they've, the Moabites have been fathered by this illegitimate union between a father and an oldest daughter. And so they multiply. And in David's day, he had the chance to eliminate the Moabites completely. But in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, we read that David killed two-thirds of the Moabites, but he left one-third of them alive to be his servants. And so there's another just man whose sin, a great man, a man after God's own heart, but who was still... A man, and whose sin in not completely eliminating the Moabites allowed them to continue to multiply. And then in his son's day, Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, now you remember Solomon had peace for 40 years. But because of his sin, after that, there would not be peace. And in 1 Kings 11, 1, it says, But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together, boy, we've been learning about the strange woman on Wednesday night that Solomon wrote about. He knows how this affects people. He loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. So there's another righteous man whose sin allowed an enemy to be incompletely defeated. And then in 2 Kings chapter 3, King Jehoshaphat failed to kill all the Moabites when God had delivered them into his hand. 
And now Israel has to deal with the Moabites again. Verse 21. And it came to pass as they were burying a man that, behold, they spied a band of men. And they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Okay, there's a lot in that verse, so let's take it very slowly. First of all, in verse 21, a burial was taking place, or it was about to take place. But the Israelites saw a band of men, and we can presume, I believe, based on what was in verse 20, that those men were Moabites. The band of men were Moabites. So they were up to no good. They were looking for trouble. And the Israelites didn't want to hang around and fall into the hands of the band of these men. So instead of going on with their, their burial and finding a sepulcher to put this dead man in, they just cast him into one that was already occupied. The same one where Elisha was buried. And that dead man's body touched Elisha's bones. So what does that tell us about how Elisha was buried? You might think, well, they just threw Elisha's body in a hole and didn't even cover it with dirt. How else could a dead man touch the bones of Elisha? Well, the sepulcher was apparently covered by a stone rather than dirt. Not every grave, not every sepulcher or burying place is like we imagine in our cemeteries out here. You know, we have mausoleums, too, where people are buried above the ground and pushed in a drawer and it's sealed shut and that's it. Uh, some people in other countries burn the dead person's bones in a big funeral pyre and that's the way they do it. But in these days that we're reading about in this part of the world, it was very common to bury someone in a sepulcher, putting them in a a hole or a cave or some void in the ground or in a hillside and rolling a rock up against it. We'll give you some Bible for that and why I think that's the case here. In Matthew chapter 26, there was a story told of a woman who poured very expensive oil on Jesus' body. Now, Jesus knew all things. He knew all things that would happen to him. He knew exactly where he would be buried to the T. Knew everything about that tomb. And here's what he said because his disciples were criticizing this woman, particularly Judas, the thief, Judas Iscariot, was criticizing this woman saying, well, couldn't that ointment have been sold for much and the money given to the poor? And the Bible said this, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but he was the one who held the bag. In other words, he would have profited. He'd have skimmed a little bit off the top, and he was upset about that. But he told Jesus otherwise. And so what Jesus answered is very instructive to our text. He said, For in that she poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. So Jesus told us right there he was going to be buried. Now, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, that means they were going to put him in the ground and put dirt on him. No, it doesn't either. He knew exactly what his tomb would look like. So 
to be buried doesn't always mean to be put in a hole and have dirt thrown on top of you. And after Jesus' crucifixion, in Mark chapter 15, we read that the body of Jesus was given to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And in that chapter, Mark 15, verse 46 says about Joseph of Arimathea, And he bought fine linen and took him down. He took Jesus down from the cross and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. That's how Jesus was buried. So it seems that Elisha was buried in that kind of tomb, which would have made it possible for the body of a dead man to touch Elisha's bones. All right, back to our text in 2 Kings 13. And look in verse 21 in the middle of the verse. It says, And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now, these are images that teach us about resurrection. One who is alive dies and is let down into a grave. Whether he's carried in and let down, or let down into a hole, or let down onto a funeral pyre and set on fire, he's let down. So you have to set him down at some point. And when he's let down into the grave, one day he's made alive again, like this man was. And this man stood up on his feet as proof that he was made alive. He didn't continue to lay there and then just open one eye and then die again so that someone could run into town and say, Hey, I saw him open his eye. I saw him open his eye. You know, probably TMI here, but you know dead bodies do some things that you didn't know about right after they die. You know one of the reasons they strap them down? Sometimes they'll expel some air and they'll sit straight, body will sit straight up. And it's just as dead as a hammer. But it'll sit straight up. Does not mean they came alive. So dead bodies do some things. But this one didn't just open an eye. This one didn't just sit up and then fall over again. This man who was dead stood up on his feet. And that is about ultimate proof that a person is not only alive but is doing well, doing just fine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, Paul wrote, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now what does it mean to be in Adam? You're in, every one of us were born in Adam. Every person who's ever lived was born in Adam. You had Adam and Eve, and their offspring, and their offspring, and here we are. So if somebody ever asks you, uh, I wonder if I'm related to him. Yes, you are. <laughs> Go back to the ark. Go back to Adam. You're, you're in Adam. So what that means is every person who's ever been born of man and woman is going to die. In fact, every person born of, born of woman is going to die, has died. Jesus died. He rose again. But he still died a physical death. And the man whom the Israelites were burying was dead in Adam, just like everyone else had been and will be. Now, Elisha was a type of Christ. 
being one whom God sent to warn Israel of judgment and to tell them about God's deliverance from their enemies. So when the body of this dead man, the man who was dead in Adam, touched the bones of Elisha, who was also dead in Adam but alive in Christ, the dead man was quickened and made alive again. Now this miracle wasn't done just so this dead man could have a second chance at life, go back and right his wrongs or, or any of that. Don't know what he did after this. Don't know how long he lived. But more than anything, this miracle was told to us to point to Jesus. It's what it did. It pointed to Jesus who would die for our sins and be raised again so that all who are in him will also be raised again from the dead unto everlasting life. Now let's take a little, little deeper look here at the dead man touching the bones of Elisha. Let's see what this might mean. This was something, by the way, I'd never seen in all of my studies. And God is so good to show me this yesterday. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Genesis 2, verse 23. And this was where God made Eve from Adam. And Adam said, when he looked at her, he said, This is now bone of my bones. Now, what did this dead man touch? He touched Elisha's bones, didn't he? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So in this verse, Adam and Eve were one from his rib. All the bones she would have were made. And even though she was a second person, she was still one with Adam. For this cause... Shall a man leave his father and mother and a wife, and they too shall become how many fleshes? One flesh. So everything that made her body, that made her Eve, was made from a bone, from a rib that was part of Adam. This is all about unity right here. They were joined together. Because one came out of the other. Now where did the woman in Genesis 2 come from? She came from the man. What was the physical thing they had in common that made them one? It was the bone, the rib that came from Adam. And even though he no longer had that rib, which was now that woman inside his body, he was still one with her. The church of Jesus Christ also came from within Jesus. We are in him, and he is in us. So even though we have, there's a Christian, there's a Christian, there's a Christian, there's a Christian. We have all these individual members, these individual people. Those who are in Christ are still one with him. Now, following this thought, Psalm chapter 34 and verse 20. Psalm 34 and verse 20 is a prophecy that was written about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. You'll also see it in Psalm chapter 22 and other psalms as well. But speaking of Jesus, this psalmist wrote, 
He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now you go forward to John chapter 19, verse 32 and 33, where Jesus is on the cross. He's dead. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. And you go down to verse 36, still in John 19. Verse 36 says, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And where was that scripture found? It was Psalm 34, verse 20 that I just read to you. Do you know what those bones represent? Those bones are his people. Those bones are Jesus' people. We came from him. Listen to what Ephesians, this isn't a far reach. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 30 says. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So when you think about Elisha's bones touching that dead man's body, bringing that man back to life, it's not just a miracle that happened then. It's a prophecy about the Lord raising every believer from the dead. Not one of his people, his bones, will be broken by death. Not one. Had never seen that before. Connecting Genesis with a psalm, with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, with the resurrection of the dead. It's a wonderful trail. That's that scarlet thread runs all the way through the Bible. Now verse 22. But Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. Now this verse goes back to before Joash's reign. You remember these last few verses we've read actually happened when Joash was alive. And so even though... He's dead, and then we read about these things, these uh, what you might call the obituary, a, a, just a snapshot of something that happened in his life. Now we're going back even before him and being reminded that in his father's day, when he was on the throne, that Syria was his foe too. And then they were Joash's foe, and they will be the enemies of the next king as well. Verse 23 and the Lord was gracious unto them, that is, unto Israel, and had compassion on them, and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. So this verse reminds us that God sent Israel a Savior to deliver them from the Syrians during Jehoahaz's reign. We already studied that. And it was God's grace, not Jehoahaz's greatness, that brought about that deliverance. Because it said, and it would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. And this is another demonstration of God's long-suffering toward his people. And it reinforces what we learned about God having his bow bent, ready to execute judgment. And next week we'll pick up with verse 24 and continue the study. Let's pray. Father, we're very thankful for the truth that comes from your word. Thank you for teaching me so that I can teach someone else. 
what you've given me. You've put it in the basket, told me to pass it out, and I'm thankful that you helped us to do that today. Now I pray that as we go from this place, we'd meditate upon this truth, not forget it, not set it aside in favor of what the world says about it, but to meditate upon it, to make it part of our, our daily walk, that we may look forward to that resurrection and not be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow for what's going on around us today in this wicked world. We pray it in Jesus' name.